You are listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. As we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 2, and if you again have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. So there we look at something that I think is going to be important for us today. I hope that all of us are learning from this, uh, from this great, wonderful guy. I mean, this is an amazing leader. I don't know if you picked that up, if you've been reading the book of Nehemiah. I've just been diving in and learning so much about what God wants to do in my life, how he wants to use me, how he wants to use you. So here's where we're at. Here's where we left Nehemiah last week. Last week, we were introduced to this amazing man, again, amazing man of God, incredible leader named Nehemiah. And when we saw him, he he was sitting down and he had his head in his hands and he was weeping. That's, that's what we find. He's weeping. He's, he's crying. He's lamenting. And, and the thing that causes him to cry is broken down walls. He sees the walls. He hears about the walls of Jerusalem. And it represents more than just a broken down physical structure. The physical brokenness, the physical disrepair really represents the condition of the people of his day. His ancestors... His Jewish mothers and fathers and friends, that's really what it represents to him. And and, and the reason that they're living in such deplorable conditions is because they turned their back on God. That what they did is they turned and they went the other way. They they worship false gods. They they worship idols. God doesn't bless disobedience. And so what we see happen years before this event takes place, what we see happen is, is invaders, enemies come in, and they, they obliterated the tribes of Israel. In the northern tribes, you have what's called Israel. There are 10 tribes in the north, and the Assyrians come in merciless, merciless. They come in, and they just wipe out. They wipe out the 10 tribes. And about the same time, the Babylonians come into the southern tribe called Judah, the two tribes there, and they they bring the children of Israel into captivity. And it's because they, they turn their back on God. And I know for me the lesson is, you know, God does not honor disobedience. That what he's asked us to do is to follow him, to, to give him all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. So what was once a fortified city where God's people would gather, the holy city of Jerusalem is now destroyed. The people are scattered. Nehemiah, he lives during this time. He's living about the time of 445 B.C. So you get an idea of where he's at. You get an idea of the context or the world that he's living in. And when he hears of this news almost 1,000 miles removed from the city of Jerusalem, he's in the capital city of Susa. It's the Persian uh, center for the kings and, and, and for nobility. This is where we find him. And he hears about the disrepair of the people of Israel, and, uh, and he, he calls on God. He recognizes that without the walls being repaired, that there is no security. There's no peace. There's no stability in life. You know, when walls are torn down, enemies can come running in anytime they want. And the city of Jerusalem is exposed in such a way that it catches Nehemiah's attention. Nehemiah sits down. He weeps. He mourns. He prays. He fasts to the God of heaven. We've talked about... How it is a a real mark of maturity and really for me an extraordinary kind of person to think beyond yourself. I know oftentimes I get consumed with my own thing, the things that are going on in my own life. Here we look at the life of Nehemiah and he is so concerned with people, other people. 
that it has to leave an impression on all that, that read about his life and the history that we have here and, and to think about other people and to, to do the right thing. And Nehemiah does that. And then God gives him this clear picture of what could be. That's only something God can do. You know, when we wait and when we pray, God wants to give us a clear picture. God wants to give you a clear picture of where he's leading you now. It's just taking that time and, and, and waiting on him. Taking that time and, and praying and seeking him. It's passion, vision, commitment that we see embodied in the person of Nehemiah. Nehemiah knows it's only the God of heaven who can make this thing happen. And he prays. And he prays for restoration. In chapter 1, we hear him confessing his sins and the sins of his ancestors. That's really remarkable to me. He could have passed that off. He could have blamed someone else. He could have talked about his great-grandfather and how bad his great-grandfather was, but he does nothing of the sort. He says, God, would you forgive me? God, would you forgive my ancestors? That's real responsibility. That, that to me, is the mark of an incredible leader, but it also tells me that restoration can only come from your knees. It only comes when we kneel and we pray and we ask the God of heaven to restore us. Nehemiah confesses his sin and the sins of his people. And from the time that Nehemiah receives the bad news, he prays and he prays and he prays and he prays some more. For four months, he prays and then God begins to do something. God begins to open the door. And you're going to see that this morning. God begins to make a way for this faithful leader named Nehemiah. Remember, we talked about the name Nehemiah, what it means. It means Yahweh comforts, God who comforts. We've recognized Nehemiah to be a type of the Holy Spirit, that it's the Holy Spirit's work in your life right now, the activity of God's Holy Spirit in you that brings about that restoration, the areas of brokenness. That's the place that the Holy Spirit runs to. He's not repelled from your brokenness. He runs to your brokenness, just like Nehemiah runs to the brokenness of his people. This is the beauty of God's Holy Spirit. And this is where we pick it up today. We, we pick up this in chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, and it says this. It says, in, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought forth to him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king, and I had not been sad in his presence before by the way, Artaxerxes was not his real name because it really means high ruler or high king. It's, it's similar to what the Egyptians would call their pharaohs. So when you see the name Artaxerxes, you know that that's not really his name. He, in fact, had a nickname. His nickname was Longjamaeus, meaning the right hand was bigger than the left hand. How do we know this? There's historical record. There's a historical record, actually, that sits right outside of his tomb today with his right hand being bigger than his left hand, and he's, he's reaching out. So you see these things that are happening, and we recognize there's true account here. Being a cupbearer, that's what Nehemiah did to the king, was Nehemiah's job. He wasn't the only cupbearer. Those kings, the Persian kings, had a lot of different cupbearers. But what we know about Nehemiah is that he was one of the favored cupbearers, maybe the most favorite cupbearer. And we can see that in his actions. We can see that, and you're going to see it in a little bit, of how the king really loves this man, and he cares for this man. This foreign king cares for the cupbearer, Nehemiah. The job was a strenuous job. You had to be careful. You had to watch your P's and Q's. You had to be someone that looked good, someone who dressed well, someone who understood the etiquette of the court with integrity, worked with excellence, 
And I think one of the things that is probably most characteristic about Nehemiah that Artaxerxes sees is that he cares for people. You'd want someone close to you. If you were a king who cared like Nehemiah did for the king, he cared for him. And one of the ways we see that is because Nehemiah was the last defense of any assassination that might be headed toward Artaxerxes. That was kind of the the, the mood of the day and the time. Kings were always having to dodge assassinations. The cupbearer was one of those who took a bullet for the king. And then you go and you look at verse 2. Verse 2 says this to us. I love this. And I think you're going to see what, he meet, what he's doing here. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very, very afraid. So for four months, he is able to hide his sadness. He's able to keep it from the king. But all of a sudden, the king notices, and the king says, you're not sick. You're really not sick. You couldn't be sick. You wouldn't be in my presence. So really what this is saying is, what's, what's up? Nehemiah, what's going on? Why, why are you looking so sad? I can see it. I can see it in your face. Nehemiah has waited from the fall to this following spring, and Nehemiah had the faith to wait. You see, he hears the news in the previous fall, and now it's the time of Nisan, which is about the spring. He's waited four months before this door opens to him. And for many of us, the word wait, I know it's true for me, the word wait is a four-letter word. Yeah, we have a tough time with that. Uh, We don't like that word, wait. I don't know if you know this, but psychologists have done studies on our, our, our little kids, and they say that a lot of little kids today have what is called, and it's a real thing, it's called a click addiction. The click addiction means that you click on something and immediately you're gratified. So that when you click on to a, a device, an iPhone or an iPad or whatever it may be, there's immediately this chemistry that actually physiologically takes place in a young person's brain, and they look and boom, there's a click addiction. They, 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 they're satisfied. There's a gratification. It's hard for people to wait. It's a true thing that we deal with, probably deal with more now than maybe, maybe my fathers and grandfathers did, but, but, but it's true. It's hard to wait. You know, I'm prone to rushing. I'm prone to rushing in. Uh, I'm prone to being nervous, moving out ahead of God. This is what I'm prone to do. And over the years, I've I've had to learn, and I'm still learning, what it is to defend against that anxiety. What is it to defend against that nervous impulse to, to just move ahead and move ahead without the blessings of God? So I have this kind of threefold thing that I use, and maybe it'll help you just a little bit. First of all, I stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Exodus chapter 14. And then I, I, I sit still until you know how the matter will turn out. Ruth chapter 3. And then I be still and know that he is God. Psalm 46. See, we, we, we need to learn how to be still. And Nehemiah, I know, was churning on the inside. I I know that he he couldn't help himself feeling what he felt because this is the compassion he has for other people, especially his own. But what does he do? He waits. And here's what I need to, to keep reminding myself. God's timing is always perfect. That God's timing down to the day, the hour, the minute is perfect. And Nehemiah says something that's common to all of us. Notice what he says. I think it probably caught most of your attention. And I was afraid. 
Certainly he was afraid. He's standing before the king. And why should he be afraid for the king to see him sad like this? Well, there's probably a few things that factor into this particular situation. Some unique to just being a cupbearer. Some unique to the fact that Nehemiah was actually a Jew. So what happens here is he's afraid. Because in those days, it was forbidden to be sad in the presence of a king. And the reason it was forbidden to be sad in the presence of a king is that when you're in the presence of royalty, that is your great privilege. That is your great honor. That is your great joy. Don't you dare show sadness. So what would the end result be if you did show sadness? Well, you might find your neck between a sword. I mean, that's what the king could do. The king could say, off with your head. That's really the detriment of being sad in front of a king. The other thing I think Nehemiah was dealing with here was he was was having to, in this turmoil, having to hold down this job, hold himself steady, still do something of excellence. Because the king would always notice how you were dressed. He would always notice how you looked. And in fact, it wasn't uncommon at all for anyone to approach a king if you had such a privilege given to you to stand and talk to the king in this way. Because you would not want the king to smell your bad breath. This is real. This is true. Because if he did, off with your head. Nothing unpleasant should be brought in front of the king, including our halitosis. Should never get in front of the king. But maybe the third thing and the thing that Nehemiah was feeling the most is there was an appeal uh, to King Artaxerxes, this very king earlier on, to go and rebuild Jerusalem, and he turned it down. He rejected the request, Ezra chapter 7, verses 17, or Ezra chapter 4, excuse me, verses 17 through 23. There's an appeal to Artaxerxes, this very same man, to go and restore the walls of Jerusalem, and he says, nope, not going to happen. So Nehemiah realizes that this could really, really go bad for him, but he's also recognizing this is an amazing opportunity. Because God will often use the position that you have in life. Don't, don't ever disregard where, where God has put you. He, he can use the position that you have in life to accomplish some things that are extraordinary, some things that are amazing. And for Nehemiah, he has waited and he's prayed and this is his chance. What is Nehemiah going to do? I mean, what's he going to do at this very moment when the commentary is about himself? I was afraid. So before we read what happens next, let me just tell you something. God will always ask you to do something that you don't want to do. He'll always ask you to do something that's just horribly uncomfortable. Something that just puts you out of your norm. He'll always do that. God might ask you to step out in faith to reconcile a relationship that hasn't worked for a while. For us, that might be one of the hardest things to do in relationship. But at the same time, we have to remember what the Apostle Paul told us. He said, now we in Christ Jesus are ministers of reconciliation. That's one of my responsibilities. It's difficult to run and to make peace and to reconcile with those that you've had a falling out with. Maybe Maybe that's the step that God's asking you to take, a big step of faith, a scary step, an uncomfortable step. 
Or maybe he's asking, God's asking you to step out in faith, to do something, to volunteer, to help, to encourage in community, in church. Somewhere, God is saying, I want you to give back. I want you to contribute. That's a scary thing. You put yourself out there. But it's a step of faith. So Nehemiah made a decision not to let his fear paralyze him. Not to let his fear hold him back. He, he chooses. He makes the decision. And fear has always been the number one enemy of the extraordinary. Will you remember that? Always. It's never the lack of talent or intellect or anything else but the lack of faith. Now I want you to think about this for me, for, with me for one minute. We talked about stepping into that faith space. We've been talking about going to those places that are uncomfortable. But what does it take to get there? It takes one insane moment of courage that lasts about 20 seconds. That's what it takes. It's that one insane moment of courage that you're here and nothing's happened yet, but there's something stirring in your heart and you do this. You step here. 20 seconds, maybe. Insane courage, great faith to move to that place. And what do we see here? Nehemiah had the faith here to take the step. Nehemiah had faith to speak up. That's what it says when you look at verse three. Look at verse three with me just for a second. I love what it says here. This is probably one of my favorites in all of this passage of scripture. It says, but I said to the king, there it is, there it is. He's been waiting, he's been waiting, he's been waiting. He's on this side of insanity. And he goes, okay, I'm going to now step over. Every one of us to see something extraordinary, something amazing, something wonderful happen in your life. Any kind of breakthrough that you experience takes that 20 seconds of insane courage. Take the step. We see here, Nehemiah takes the step. He opens his mouth. He begins to speak. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my father's are buried, lies in ruin, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Got that one out. Said it. Been wanting to say it. Been thinking I need to do that. Been thinking this is where God's leading me, but I said it. I got it out there. Now Now the king knows. Do you you know how many Jesus followers never get to the extraordinary? They stop right here. On this side of insane courage. How many Jesus followers never see the work of God in our lives because we don't take that one step and just speak up. Just say it. Because we get about this far And we stop. You know the best way to deal with courage, don't you? It's confront it. I know know our inclination is to run from it, but really the best way to deal with it is to confront it, to look it square in the eyes. When we were first married, I found out not too long after we were married that Annette is crazy afraid of spiders. 
Some of you are like that. Now, I have other fears. That's not necessarily one of them. I didn't know how crazy afraid she was of spiders. I thought nobody could be that crazy afraid of spiders. And one day we were just hanging out, having coffee together, and there was a spider. And she said, get the spider, get the spider. And I grabbed the spider in a napkin, and I thought, oh, I'm just going to walk up to her and, and dangle the napkin. I did. She hit me with her coffee cup right there. Just boom. And I went, oh, she really is afraid of spiders. Now, I have to say, to her benefit, over the years, she's not as, as she's confronted it. But she did something. She passed it on to my daughter. So when my daughter was really little, she was t- taking a bath, and I, all of a sudden, I heard this horrible, blood-curdling scream in the bathroom, and I went running in, and she said, Daddy, Daddy, there's a spider in the bathtub. There's a spider. And she was, she was like, there's a spider in the bathtub. And I looked down, and I said, Honey, that, that's just a piece of lint. She goes, then kill the lint spider. Kill the lint spider. <laughs> so I killed the lint spider. Because honestly, when we, we, when we confront our fears, the spider turns to lint. When we confront those things that are in front of us, it, 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 it allows us to move forward. So what is it that fear keeps you stuck on? What is it that you're afraid of that actually has you paralyzed from moving forward, that holds you back? What is it? I want you to notice how tactful Nehemiah is. His response is really amazing. This guy is a diplomat of all diplomats because he doesn't say the city of Jerusalem. Notice what he says. He says, the city where my ancestors are buried is in disrepair. Brilliant. Why, why is that so important? Because the city of Jerusalem is the center or the headquarters of the Jews. He doesn't say, I want to go rebuild the headquarters of the Jews. Because that could have posed a huge threat to King Artaxerxes. I mean, you're going to start the conversation that way. You might not get any further. So folks that work with people and work in business, hey, take, take note here. He's honest. He starts the conversation. He, he says, listen, this is what is going on. The, the, the people of my ancestors, the, 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 the people that I care for, the, their city is in disrepair. And then verse 4. In verse 4 it says, it says this, and I like it. It says, the king said to me, what is it you want? And I prayed to the God of heaven. I love that. What is it you want? And then I prayed to the God of heaven. Because this is it. And you're going to notice that Nehemiah has a habit of doing things like this all through his book. And some of you who think, wow, this guy, man, he just was always kneeling down and he was praying. There were times he did. But I want to tell you, most of Nehemiah's prayers are on the fly. They're on the fly. And I want you to dispel something in your own heart and your own mind. That you can be just as spiritual praying on the fly. You're Prayers don't have to be long and drawn out. Certainly don't have to have the King James language wrapped into it somewhere. Nehemiah says this. The king basically says, how can I help you? What is it I can do for you? And I love this. I said, so I prayed to the God of heaven. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, if you're familiar. Paul says, to pray without ceasing. Do you know what the word without ceasing, <clears throat> without ceasing, me, <clears throat> without ceasing means?
without ceasing means, that's what it means. It does. The Greek word actually is used for someone who can't stop coughing. You know where you have that tickle in your throat and you can't stop coughing? I know it was a little uncomfortable for some of you. Some of you started coughing. No one brought me any water. No one. Y'all left me hang out to dry here. I know my wife would have, but I gave her a heads up on that. That's exactly what it means. It means it is so close you can't get away from it, that, that it's right there, that whenever you face anything that challenges your life, you pray without ceasing. It's like trying to get rid of a cough. You can't help it. You can't do it. You pray without ceasing. Nehemiah was one of these guys that just lived his life this way, that he prayed without ceasing. I, I love that about him. You don't need long prayers, but you do need to be in tune with the Spirit of God. You must be in tune and know the power of prayer. I want you to believe and know and understand the power of prayer. I know, I, I know for me, when I, when I feel that helplessness, uh, that, that, that's what I want to do. I, I want to pray. My first response shouldn't be to run. My first response shouldn't be to cover myself and make myself look smarter than I am. My first response should actually be, Lord, I, I'm praying. I'm praying it's not long. I'm going to tell you what my short prayer is. I can tell you all what it is. You might already know. My short prayer is help. God hears you ask for help. You can just say help. Ask for help. And what happens? You step in when you do into that faith space. We don't know what Nehemiah prayed. It doesn't tell us. But I'm, you know, my guess is, God of heaven, help me. The door's open. Verse 5. Verse 5 is, is beautiful. It says this. We'll look at verse 5. And I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send to me, or send me to the city of Judah, where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild. Notice what he does. You know, he's getting closer to proximity here. <laughs> I love that. To Judah. Now, now he's kind of identified a region. This is brilliant. This is beautiful leadership strategy. So, well, I'm going to tell them where it is now. It's in the region of Judah. So now the, the king's, he's cluing in here. This is so important. I think there's a lesson for us to learn for those who are employed. Do this. Make sure there's an honor and a respect to those that you work for. And work with excellence so that you can say, if your servant has found favor... You know what Nehemiah is actually saying? He's implying that he's done excellent work. That there's no fault to be found in him. What he's saying here is I've done my job with integrity. I've done my job with excellence. Now, would you send me to Judah? You see, Nehemiah doesn't just want to go. And hear this. He doesn't want to just go. He wants to go with the king's blessing. Big difference. People come and go all the time. But rarely do you see people actually stop and pause and say, I'm headed this direction. Do I have a blessing before I go? Nehemiah is asking a heathen king to bless him because he understands authority. He understands that this is the man in charge. This is who I work for. 
this is the one that I'm going to respect. Friends, that's a big deal. That is a huge deal. I remember when we left our former church a long time ago, and I sat down with a pastor before we left, and he said, Ron, it looks like that you're headed to Canby. And I said, that's really, really good. And this is what I said. I said to him, I'm not going unless you bless me. You can send me. You can kick me out. You could do that. But I want you to bless me. I need your blessing before I leave. And he stood up, and he laid his hands on me, and he said, you're blessed, son. You are blessed to go. Makes a big difference. I wasn't running from someone or something. I was being sent with a blessing. That's exactly what Nehemiah experiences here. In verse 6, look at verse 6 with me. Verse 6, it says, Then the, the king with the queen sitting by his side. Queens had about the same kind of influence as the king did. Uh, we're not sure uh, exactly. The queen at that time could have, even in the Persian Empire, could have been a concubine, but one with very, uh, very great influence. So they sat together. She consulted the king. The king consulted with her. There was just this activity that went on, and I think that's why the point is made. So he's not only talking to the man, he's talking to the woman. And sometimes there's a, a longer laundry list there. Are you really good? This queen might be asking questions that the king didn't even think about asking. I love this. I love what's happening here. It's so important that we see that the king said beside him, okay, how long will your journey take? And when, you get, and when will you get back? Uh, it pleases the king to send me, so I, I set a time. Like a wise king, he asked Nehemiah, how long will it be? How long will you be gone? The king wants Nehemiah back. Nehemiah is a good, good employee. And he says, you know, I, I don't really want you to be gone that long uh, because you really make me look good. I trust you. I, I, I'm leaning into you. And with this question, Nehemiah, listen to this. In, with this question, Nehemiah has already developed a plan. I just want to say this. God honors a plan. If you want great things to happen, certainly it's taking that one insane moment of courage, stepping over the line, but I'm just thinking and praying that you have prayed and thought about what that looks like once you get on the other side. If God is asking you to do something, if God is asking you to take this big step of faith, what's the plan? Have you put that together? Have you thought about that? Nehemiah had the faith to plan. The reason I say that is because some say, I don't have to have a plan. I just need to have faith. I've been with people like that. What are you going to do? I'm just going to go, just go do this by faith. My response typically is, no, you better just go study. That's what you should do. You should have a plan because I recognize the more that I study, the closer that I get to God, the better everything usually works out. And I'm going to just say it. I'll just get it out there. Oftentimes, charismatic Pentecostal churches have the, you know, I'm just going to wing it thing. It's about a plan. God honors your plans. Now, we do hold those loosely because I'm not sovereign. He is. I don't know everything he does. But I am going to do due diligence. I am going to take responsibility. I am going to plan as if it will happen in faith. God, I'm going to plan. I love this about Nehemiah because he's not going to waste any time once that door opens. The man has a plan. God is a planning God. God doesn't just wing it. 
Go to Genesis chapter 2. You find out when Adam and Eve fall. They sin. They break covenant and relationship with God. Go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God puts in a plan to bring redemption and salvation to you. I'm glad he plans. I'm glad that was his plan because it saved me. You see, God, God is a planning God. He, he's a God who cares for people. You know, when I first uh, came here as a, as a young preacher, I didn't really plan that much. You know, I, had a, I thought I had an arsenal of just some pretty good messages. You know, it was shoot from the hip kind of thing. Man, I was into this about six months. And I sat down and I thought, I don't really need to do this. I'm just going to, this is what I'm going to talk about. And, and, and the Lord just, oh, he just rebuked me. He said, Really? You need to study. You need, you need to have a plan. You need to put this together. You, you shouldn't wing it from that day forward. I have a 10-page book report on God every Sunday. This isn't so much for you. This is for me. Because I know that I'd probably be one of those guys that are just winging all the time. And God says, no, you've got to have a plan, son. And God blesses plans. In fact, I really think plans are an exercise of great, great faith. You see, planning with God is his way to draw you close to him. Are you following me? Planning with God is his way of drawing you close to him. That's his ulterior motive. That's what he wants to see happen. He wants to see you get close to him because when you get close to him, you can execute your plan according to his plan. That all makes sense? I, I, I hold my plans, like I said, loosely because I know that God honors plans, but he's the one who's in charge. And here's Nehemiah's plan. I want to read verses 7 through 9 with you, and we're going to wrap it up. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the forest. I love this. The keeper of the forest. Some believe that's probably in Lebanon because he had to come up from the north and drop back down and that's where you would find a lot of uh, forest timber. Uh, I, I, I need those to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall for the, for the residents there. I, I will occupy right in that place. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. And so I went to the governors, to the trans-Euphrates, and I gave them king's letters. And the king had also sent armies, or an army of officers and cavalry with me. He, he starts to unpack this. Nehemiah is not afraid to ask the man who has the best influence and can bring the greatest help to him. He's not afraid to ask. Listen, I want you to hear this. Don't be afraid to ask from the people who can influence what God is doing in your life the most. This is where I see a lot of guys get hung up. We, we get this pride and we, we have this like self-will. you know, will. We have this self-dependency and you're trying to work through something. Whatever that something is, you're trying to work through it and you're just saying to yourself, I'm not asking anybody. I got this. I can do it. The answer is no, you can't and you can't get through it on your own. 
Who can help influence your process? Who can help speak in to what's going on? Don't be afraid to ask those who can help you. Nehemiah has even thought through the building materials that he needs. Believe me, he dreamed about this day. The king had influence. He had a huge influence, which brings me to the last question, the last thought today, is if you are someone with resource and influence, how do you use it? Let me just ask you that. If you're someone who runs a business, if you're someone who oversees other people, if you're someone, and this even works in family, how do you use your influence and resource to help people realize their vision? See, what I know about my vision, my call to this place, and really probably anywhere I go, you know what my vision is? My vision is to help you find your vision. That's mine. It's real simple. It's how I live in life. Wherever I'm at, wherever I go, whoever I spend time with, I'm always thinking and wondering, okay, what's God got going in Glenn over here? What's he up to, man? I think that, let's, okay, let's talk about it. Let's pray over this. And, 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 and we start to execute it. Glenn oversees our angel tree. Does a great job. So, so how do we do that? That's the vision I have. I want to help people get to where God wants them to be. And see, when you're a person of influence, you can do that. You can use your influence to get people where God wants them to be. I'm just going to confess. I'm going to say this. I'm going to just tell you. I'm so appreciative for the opportunity God gives me to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm so grateful that I get to talk about God's word. I get to talk about Jesus in front of folks. But for me, some of you might not know this. I'm a little more of an introvert than I am an extrovert. So this isn't always easy for me. And it, is all, it isn't always pleasant for me. <laughs> Sunday morning, I wake up and I'm going, oh, Lord, what am I doing? What am I doing? But here's what brings courage. This is what brings courage. I know that this can help me help you get to where God wants you to be. In your faith, in your journey, in your ministry, in your life, God help us. And here's the two things that I think are so important. So important that you see this king provide for Nehemiah. He provides opportunity and with that opportunity he gives a resource. It's probably the greatest gift any influencer can give to other people. Opportunity and resource. You know why? Because leaders like Nehemiah will jump on all over that. They see the opportunity. They are being resourced, and they execute God's plan. That's where God's calling you. So today, would you do this? Ask where you need to step out in faith. Where is it you need to take that insane 20 seconds? A text, a note, an email, a conversation, whatever it might be. Where is it that you've got to do this? And don't Freeze up. Don't let fear paralyze you. Amen? God is good. God is good all the time. Just remember, he's good all the time. Next Sunday, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about standing against opposition. That's what we're going to do because guess what happens when you start moving in the direction God wants you to be? There'll always be a sand ballad in Tobiah, always. And we'll talk about that. Lord, we just thank you today for your great work in our life. You are so amazing, so incredibly good to us, and we are grateful. In Jesus' name we pray and we say amen. Amen. Would you go ahead and stand with me again? I'm so Thank you for listening. 
please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.